Welcome to the Beach House 34 podcast, where we dive into the world of the unexplained, the mysterious, and the eerie. Gird yourself to listen to stories about haunted houses, things that go bump in the night, and make you question your mental faculties. Sure to make you look over your shoulder at every dark corner. Here's your host, Christine Wirth. Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime Podcast. And hello to all of the new subscribers and the rest of the Beach House 34 family. If you enjoy this podcast and you find yourself coming back time and time again, please like and subscribe wherever you choose to listen. And you can also show your support through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Beach House 34. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's get on with it. There is no doubt that you have heard of the book and the movie, The Exorcist. The book was written in 1971 by William Peter Blatty, and it talks about the demonic possession of an 11-year-old girl, Reagan. Now, a film also entitled The Exorcist was released two years later and was a huge hit. It was so huge that police were actually called in to control the lines that would form outside the theaters of those who were waiting to just get a ticket. Now, some theaters handed out coupons, which actually guaranteed a place in line, and people waited up to five hours to see the movie. But the problem was is that they probably didn't know what they were in for. Um, People would walk out of the movie, not because it was a bad movie, but because they couldn't handle it any longer. Workers at theaters would talk about how they would see these people come out and they looked like ghosts. They were pale, they were sickly looking. It wasn't uncommon for people to faint or throw up while watching the movie. Staff would even keep smelling salts on hand. Now, what probably added to these intense feelings was that it was not just a fictional movie. It was a fact based on real events that occurred in January of 1949. Now, the boy in the real story of The Exorcist has always been referred to as Roland Doe, probably the most popular uh, form of his name, or Robbie Mannheim, or just simply the boy. In 2021, the Guardian newspaper reported that the purported true identity of this boy was Ronald Edwin Hunkeler, who passed away in May of 2020 at the age of 85 after he suffered a stroke. So throughout this story, I'll refer to him as Ronnie. Now at the time, all of this began for Ronnie. He was 13 years old. Now others in the story that are important are his grandmother, his parents, and especially his aunt. His aunt, who used to visit the family on a regular basis, was Matilda Louise Tilly Hunkeler, and she was the sister of Ronnie's dad. Now, in a small home in Cottage City, Maryland, lived Ronnie, who was 13, his mom, Odell, his dad, Edwin, and his grandmother, Anna. And they often had a frequent visitor, and this was Aunt Tilly, who came in from St. Louis. Now, Aunt Tilly was a spiritualist, And this is someone who believes that the spirits of the dead can communicate with living people. 
Aunt Tilly often brought her Ouija board with her and told Ronnie that it was a way to contact people on the other side. It is said that Aunt Tilly taught Ronnie how to use this board. Now, most of you listening know what a Ouija board is, or at the very least, you've seen it either on television or on YouTube channels. But for those that don't know exactly what it is, or probably more to the point, why they are not considered a positive thing, is that it's often said that when you use the Ouija board, you are opening yourself up to allow evil, demonic spirits in, especially if not used properly, such as closing out the session. Now, even though this happened in 1949, the Ouija board wasn't actually introduced commercially until July 1st of 1980. But before that, there were many types of these spirit boards, even dating back to 1886. Now, it depends on who you talk to as to whether or not a Ouija board is in fact a way to communicate with the dead or if it's just a toy. Mainstream Christian denominations, including Catholics, have warned against the use of Ouija boards, considering their use a satanic practice. And other religious groups hold that they can lead to demonic possession. Armed with all of this knowledge that we have today, it's unlikely that many of these warnings were well known in 1949 when the exorcism case took place. As a matter of fact, it was very common for people to use Ouija boards as a form of entertainment. Now, after Aunt Tilly had come and stayed with the family, Ouija board in tow, she spent time with Ronnie using the board with him. And she left after staying for just a few days. Now, later we find out that Ronnie too had a Ouija board, but it is unknown if he had his own or if Aunt Tilly had given him hers. When Aunt Tilly left to go back to St. Louis, it was around January 13th. Now on one Saturday night, January 15th, Ronnie's mom and dad went out for the night. The two left at home were Ronnie and his grandma, Anna. Grandma Anna had decided to go to her room and it wasn't long before she began to hear a noise. It was a dripping noise that she couldn't place. She just didn't know where it was coming from. This continued for a while until it stopped, only to be replaced with a pounding coming from inside her bedroom wall, directly behind a picture of Christ. The picture shook as if something was trying to knock it off the wall. It is unknown if she mentioned anything to Ronnie about what was happening, but once Ronnie's parents came home, things got even worse. Still inside Grandma Anna's bedroom, they all began to hear scratching noises coming below the floorboards near the end of her bed. They all thought it's just some kind of animal. The scratching noises continued, and it's unclear exactly if these scratching noises were in Grandma's room only, or if they had moved into the walls in other parts of the house. But what was known was that the entire family was being affected by the sound. For the next few nights, the scratching was heard. And each night, it was around 7 p.m. The scratching would continue until about midnight. Now, since it had gone on for so long, the family finally brought in an exterminator who put chemicals under the floorboards. Still, the scratching continued. The family, now incredibly frustrated, would stomp on the floor, hoping to get it to stop. But when they did, the scratching became even louder. For 10 days, the scratching continued and then just stopped. 
The family believed that the animal, or whatever it was, had died. At least that's what they were telling themselves. The next day, which was January 26th, 1949, Ronnie's beloved Aunt Tilly passed away. She had actually been suffering from multiple sclerosis and at the young age of 54, the disease was finally just way too much for her. It is said that Ronnie was devastated. So he took the Ouija board to try and contact her. Ronnie also starts to become withdrawn and extremely agitated around the same time. It's likely that his family felt that the reason for his change in behavior was because he was depressed because he had just lost his favorite aunt. The scratching sounds, which seemed to have stopped for the rest of the family, still affected Ronnie. Now the silence for the rest of the family was short-lived, however, because three days later, the sounds began again. But this time it was in Ronnie's room. This time though, it wasn't scratching. It was more like shoes that were squeaking alongside Ronnie's bed. And the only time it was heard was at night after Ronnie had gone into his bedroom. This sound continued for six nights. And after the sixth night, the scratching sounds were back. Mom and grandma began to become very concerned. So one night they were in Ronnie's room with Ronnie while he lay in his bed. And all three of them heard something coming towards them that sounded like the rhythm of marching feet and the beat of drums. The sound traveled the length of the mattress and then back again, and it repeated this action over and over. Now, Odell, Ronnie's mom, spoke into the air. Is this you, Aunt Tilly? Now, it's possible she was hoping for a logical explanation, but keep in mind, these scratching sounds had begun before Aunt Tilly had passed away. Odell continued to ask questions, but never received any kind of reply. She said out loud, if you are Tilly, knock three times. At this point, heavy breezes then erupted. It struck all three of them, and then three loud knocks were heard on the floor. Odell asked again, if you are Tilly, tell me positively by knocking four times. Four loud knocks were then heard, after which there were claw scratches on the bottom of the mattress. Now it's unknown why grandma and mom didn't pay any attention to these scratching sounds. You know, maybe they didn't hear it. Maybe they had just gotten tired of it, but nonetheless, the scratching was ignored. But when it was, something new happened. The entire mattress shook violently. Also during this time, other activity was occurring inside the home. Now the following is quoted from notes taken down by the priests who later handled this case. Quote, an orange and a pear flew across the room where Ronnie had been standing. Milk and food were thrown off the table and stove. The breadboard was thrown to the floor. A coat in the living room, still on its hanger, flew across the room. A comb flew through the air and extinguished blessed candles. A Bible was thrown at the feet of Ronnie, but it didn't injure him. While the family was visiting a friend in Boonesboro, Maryland, the rocker in which Ronnie was seated spun completely around with no effort by Ronnie. Ronnie's desk at school moved about on the floor, similar to the planchette on a Ouija board. Ronnie did not continue his attendance out of embarrassment. 
Now, on one occasion, the cover of Ronnie's bed was pulled out from under the mattress and the edges stood up above the surface of the bed in a curled form, as though it were being held up, quote, with starch. And when it was touched by those that saw it, it fell back into a normal position. The scratching on the mattress continued without stopping since the first night it was hurt. A medium was then called in, and this medium specialized in getting rid of spirits who are affecting people. But he had zero success. With nowhere else to go, the family then decides to get in contact with their minister. The family is Lutheran, and so they contact a Reverend Schultz. Now, Reverend Schultz, along with another minister, visit the home. They were concerned that Ronnie might be causing these issues himself, right? One of the ministers then invites Ronnie to stay the night with him. Ronnie and his family agree. This was February 17th and 18th, and the activity within their household had been occurring now for nearly three weeks at this point. While Ronnie was in the minister's home in bed, again, scratching sounds were heard. The minister prayed, but the sounds became louder. Ronnie was then moved to a chair. As Ronnie sat in the chair, the chair would move with him in it and at one time threw him out. The minister was concerned. When Ronnie came back to his family, it was suggested that Ronnie have a physical. So Ronnie then visited a physician. He too found Ronnie to be a normal boy, but quote, somewhat high strung. The minister then suggested that the physician have Ronnie visit the county medical hygiene clinic under Dr. Mabel Ross of the University of Maryland. In other words, a mental health facility to visit with a psychiatrist. Much later, after the case was over, a letter was found by a researcher that had spent um, had been sent to the department. This letter had been sent to the Department of Psychology at Duke University. And the letterhead on the letter was from St. Stephen's Evangelical Lutheran Church. And it stated, quote, we have in our congregation a family who are being disturbed by poltergeist phenomena. The phenomenon is apparent only in the boy's presence. I had him in my home the night of February 17th and 18th to observe for myself. Chairs move with him and one threw him out. I had their physician place the boy in the hands of the County Mental Hygiene Clinic under Dr. Mabel Ross of the University of Maryland. She and her staff had two interviews with the boy and he was to have gone for a third, but meantime, words appeared on the boy's body according to the family and friends, unquote. First off, it should be mentioned that in 1949, there was a huge stigma surrounding mental illness. People didn't talk about it. And if you had a family member who did suffer from mental illness, you put them into a mental institution and then never ever spoke about it. It was considered a shame on the family to have a member in such a location. Now it's not clear exactly why, why Ronnie never showed up for his third appointment, but some speculate that it could have been the stigma surrounding what was happening to him, or it could have been an article that his mom had read earlier talking about the deplorable conditions in state mental hospitals. This article had appeared at the beginning of 1949 and was a set of articles published in the newspaper. 
It was titled, The Worst Story Ever Told by the Sun Papers. And it states, Maryland's overcrowded state mental quote-unquote hospitals are breeding chronic insanity faster than they can cure it. The five tax-supported mental institutions were built to house 6,000, but already nearly 9,000 are packed into their gloomy, frequently foul-smelling rooms. Inside the walls of these Maryland quote-unquote snake pits, men, women, and children are living like animals. Hundreds of them were once substantial citizens, doctors, lawyers, scientists, businessmen. Many could have become useful citizens again, but only a few of them are getting any curative treatment at all. Treatment for few, neglect for most. And most have been neglected so long that they are already all but incurable. Others for whom there is still hope will become hopelessly insane in the next 12 months. The hospitals are powerless to help them. These people might have been cured and might have returned to the outside world as active citizens and taxpayers. Instead, they will spend the rest of their lives in seclusion, a burden on the taxpayers. Spring Grove State Hospital in Catonsville, I believe, is so understaffed and overcrowded that out of its 2,359 patients, only 191 are now getting active treatment. At Springfield State Hospital in Sykesville, there is only one registered nurse for the 3,000 patients. And out of Springfield's 3,000, fewer than 250 are getting any curative treatment. The article continues on, but I think you've got the gist of it. Now, while this sounds like it was an over-the-top and sensational article, sadly, it wasn't. The mental hospitals and asylums at that time were almost exactly as the articles said that they were. Quote, overcrowded, many, many of the patients were wrapped in straitjackets, others were tied to chairs, and most of them were neglected. Medical treatment was barbaric, with very few patients ever released, unquote. So this is why, if you watch many shows about, say, ghost hunting or the paranormal, you'll often see mental hospitals and asylums as very popular places to visit because they are so haunted. As Ronnie's parents read this, I'm sure that they panicked. I mean, you want what's best for your child, and here you are reading about how horrible the conditions are and how lacking the treatment is. Now, the Reverend, after Ronnie had passed his physical and had had his psychiatric appointments, well, you know, at least two of them, and after having witnessed firsthand what was happening to Ronnie, felt that it was beyond what he knew to do. So he went to the family and suggested that they contact a Catholic priest since it's something that the Catholics understand. The family did take the advice of their reverend and they went to St. James Catholic Church in Mount Rainier, Maryland. There, they spoke to Father E. Albert Hughes. Father Hughes was a young pastor. He had actually only been ordained a few years. Years later, Father Hughes' associate pastor, Father Frank Bober, spoke about what Father Hughes had told him when he had first met Ronnie. He had told Father Bober that as they sat in his office talking with him, the room became, became very cold, almost frigid. At one point, Ronnie looked at the phone on the father's desk and the phone moved on its own. Now, there are two versions of the story in regards to Father Hughes. There is the documentation 
of the case by the priests. And then there is the information given in a televised or a uh, documentary. Within the notes that were made by the priests who ended up performing the exorcism on Ronnie, Father Hughes was simply asked for his advice. He suggested blessed candles, holy water, and prayers. He never met the boy in person. Now, Ronnie's mom took the bottle of holy water home, sprinkled all the rooms, and when she placed the bottle on a shelf, the bottle flew across the room, but did not break. When she held the lighted candle alongside of Ronnie at night, the whole bed, mother and son, moved back and forth with the swaying of the mattress. Prayers ordinarily aggravate the phenomena. Father Hughes was seeking permission from the bishop for an exorcism about the same time when the family was going to St. Louis, so he was unable to proceed with his plan. Now, this is what was written down in documentation. There's a separate documentary about the case, and this is quite different. And this goes, Father Hughes suspected that Ronnie may be under the influence of evil. So he turned to a book called The Roman Ritual for Help. Now, the Roman Ritual is like a handbook used by Catholic priests. It tells them the steps, words, and actions they need to follow for various ceremonies and special occasions like marriages, baptisms, and funerals. It's like having a set of instructions for building something, but in this case, it's for conducting religious services. In this book, there is a chapter on exorcism that explains what the signs of possession are. While the Roman ritual doesn't give an exhaustive list, some of these signs are, one, speaking foreign languages, the person may speak in a language they have never learned, two, superhuman strength, a demonstration of strength beyond normal human capacity. Number three is aversion to sacred objects or places, a strong and irrational fear or hatred of religious symbols, prayers, or places. Four, knowledge of hidden things, knowing things that should be unknown or secret to them. Five, changes in personality or behavior. Drastic shifts in behavior or personality often manifesting in aggressive or strange ways. And six, inexplicable, excuse me, illness or maladies. So health conditions or physical symptoms that cannot be explained by medical science. These signs are used in conjunction with professional medical and psychiatric evaluation. The church requires these, the medical uh, checkup and a psychiatric evaluation in order to rule out other conditions before they will perform an exorcism. Now, Father Hughes in this documentary became convinced after reading the signs that Ronnie was under satanic possession, but Father Bober would later say that Father Hughes wasn't interested in performing the exorcism ritual himself. So what he did was hand the case over to Archbishop O'Boyle. Now an archbishop in the Catholic church is like the principal of a school and priests are like the teachers in that school. Archbishop O'Boyle instead turned around and requested that Father Hughes go ahead and perform the ceremony. The rules for performing an exorcism in regards to the priest are quite strict. The person performing the exorcism has to be distinguished for his piety, his prudence, and his integrity of life. 
In simple terms, this means that the priest has to have a strong respect and love of his religion. He must be incredibly careful when making decisions and must be honest and have strong moral principles. He must also be of mature years. Now, Father Hughes was afraid that he might not meet all of these criteria, especially considering that he was so young, but he prepared as well as he could. Before performing an exorcism, you must pray and fast, which he did. Father Hughes then got permission from Georgetown Hospital to have Ronnie taken there in order to perform the exorcism. He, however, was not prepared for what happened. Ronnie was brought to the hospital and restrained to a bed. Father Hughes began to get all of the items ready that he would need for the exorcism. And as he did, Ronnie started to become agitated and violently moved around in his bed, trying to get out of the restraints. Once the exorcism began, Ronnie started to scream, curse, and speak in Latin phrases. As Father Hughes began to reach the climax of the exorcism, Ronnie got out of one of his restraints and tore a steel spring from the bed. It slashed Father Hughes from his shoulder to his wrist, and it would require Father Hughes to get 100 stitches. Father Hughes felt as if he was no match for what it was that he was dealing with. The first exorcism on Ronnie was a failure. Again, there are two versions of the story of Father Hughes. The first, he provided the family items and instructions. And the second, he attempted an exorcism himself. So while there are two, I'm giving you the two versions. Once Ronnie returned home, scratches began to appear on his body for four nights straight. On the fifth night, Ronnie doubled over in pain and an actual word was scratched onto Ronnie's body that appeared to have been done by claws. And that word was Lewis. Now, Ronnie's mom, Odell, was a native of St. Louis, and she had been thinking of taking Ronnie there to see if it made whatever this was go away. How this thing knew that, she didn't know. According to the documentary on the case, Ronnie's mom then asked Ronnie, is this what you want? The word yes then appeared scratched in blood on Ronnie's body. After the family had discussed going to St. Louis, they were questioning when they should go. On the boy's hip, the word Saturday had clearly been marked. Again, the question arose as to how long they should stay there. And again, a message was scratched onto Ronnie that said three and a half weeks. At first it was thought, that maybe Ronnie was doing it, but his hands never left his sides. Each time there were scratches, the pain was nearly too much for Ronnie and he would utter a guttural sound. All that being said, not long after Ronnie and his mom did jump on a train and headed to St. Louis where they would travel to a relative's home. While in St. Louis, the writing continued, one time on Ronnie's back. When, while in St. Louis, there was a question about sending Ronnie to school there, a large no school appeared on his body. This was witnessed by two aunts of Ronnie, four uncles and four cousins in St. Louis. Additionally, the mattress 
swayed back and forth, knocking over bedroom furniture and scratching on the mattress was also observed by everyone present. Ronnie's mom was terrified of disobeying. Now, one of Ronnie's cousins attended St. Louis University and had witnessed what had been happening with Ronnie. So she asked the family if it would be okay if she talked to one of her professors, Father Bishop, about what was happening. So on March 9th, according to the printed records of the priests, quote, the violent moving of the mattress and the scratching on the boy's body was observed by the mother, an aunt and uncle, the college-aged cousin, a friend of the family, and Father Bishop. Father Bishop, after observing what was happening, consulted Father Kenny and Father Reinert, the president of the university. They together decided that it might be well to have the boy say some prayers and that we could give him the priestly blessing. So Father Bishop and a fellow priest went to the house and they blessed the entire place. He used a special blessing in Ronnie's room and on Ronnie's bed. A relic of St. Margaret Mary was then pinned to the corner of Ronnie's pillow. Even after the blessing of the house and in spite of the relic, the swaying of the bed was evident and the scratching appeared. This happened for about 15 minutes. Father Bishop then sprinkled St. Ignatius holy water on the bed in the form of a cross and the movement seemed to stop, but began as soon as Father Bishop had left the room. Again, over the course of 15 minutes, Ronnie cried out in pain as his mom pulled back the bed covers and lifted the boy's pajama top. It showed zigzag scratches and bold red lines on the boy's abdomen. During this time, Ronnie was not out of view of observers. When the mattress finally did stop shaking, it was after 11.15 at night. Much of what follows next is direct documentation of the priests that were all involved in the exorcism of Ronnie. On Thursday, March 10th, all of the family members that had been at the home previously were still there. The only one that was not present was Father Bishop. Again, the mattress shook and the scratching started. Each of these things seemed to beat out of rhythm as if they were marching soldiers. The relic of St. Margaret Mary had been thrown to the floor. The safety pin had been opened, but no one had touched it. Ronnie abruptly sat upright when this happened, terrified. On Friday, March 11th, again, all of the same family members are at the house. Relatives of Ronnie took Father Bishop and Father Bowdern to the house. Father Bowdern, the pastor, thought it would be appropriate to take a relic of St. Francis Xavier along for a novena blessing. And a novena blessing is a set of prayers that are typically repeated over the course of nine days. He also carried a crucifix containing relics of several of the North American martyrs and of St. Peter Canisius. The priests concluded their service around nine o'clock that night. Ronnie ended up going to bed around 11 p.m. that night. He cried out shortly after because an object had been thrown against the mirror in his bedroom. The relic of St. Margaret Mary had once again been pinned to his pillowcase, but once again had been opened and thrown against the mirror. A cross mark appeared on Ronnie's left outer forearm. It remained there for about 45 minutes. 
Father Baudern read the Novena Prayer of St. Francis Xavier and then blessed Ronnie with a relic, which actually happened to be a piece of bone from the forearm of St. Francis Xavier. Then a crucifix was safety pinned under Ronnie's pillow. The mattress during this time did not shake, nor was there any scratching. As the observers went downstairs to leave Ronnie to sleep and to review the history of the case, a loud crash was heard in Ronnie's bedroom. The bottle of St. Ignatius holy water was thrown from a table two feet from Ronnie's bed. A bookcase had also been moved from beside the bed and turned so that it faced the entrance to the room. The stool was moved back to where it was supposed to go and within moments was turned over. Ronnie and his mom were in bed when the crucifix with relics was moved from under the pillow to the foot of the bed. The relic of St. Margaret Mary was actually never found after that. Again, the bed began to shake and again, scratching could be heard again, all in rhythm. Those in the home at the time, five of them began to ask questions of whatever it was that was doing this. There was a question about how much money Aunt Tilly had concealed before she passed. And after asking numerous questions and receiving what they felt were responses, a crude map had been drawn that led to a metal strongbox in the attic, but only Ronnie's father, who was still in Maryland, could find it. When they suggested that someone else do it, the bed again shook violently. More questions were asked and it revealed that the money was for the daughter of, and this information was redacted. Whenever the group wanted the bed to stop shaking, they would holler, stop, and the bed would stop as though it was listening for a question. On Saturday, March 12, 1949, Father Bowdern and Father Bishop arrived at the home of Ronnie at 1145. And this is PM. As the priests were heading up to Ronnie's room, a scraping noise was heard. The bookcase had swung around from the wall to the side of Ronnie's bed in an arc of five or six feet. Father Bishop had put the bookcase back and then Father Baudern blessed Ronnie with the relic of St. Francis Xavier and holy water. The fathers prayed the rosary aloud and then prayed silently from 12 p.m. until three in the morning. Ronnie had a normal night's sleep and no disruptions occurred. On Sunday, the 13th of March, only the family was at the house. The mattress again shook, and again there was scratching underneath the mattress. This only lasted, however, about one and a half hours. On Monday, the 14th, a stool was thrown over Ronnie's bed and landed with a loud crash. Nothing was broken though. The bed shook as it had before, but only lasted for about two hours. Tuesday the 15th, again the mattress shook and continued for about two hours. Finally, on Wednesday the 16th, it was requested and permission was granted that the Most Reverend Archbishop Joseph E. Ritter, that Father William S. Baudern, pastor of the College Church in St. Louis, might read the prayers of exorcism according to the Roman ritual. Father Baudern, Bishop, and Mr. W. Halloran, and this is a gentleman who is not yet finished uh, doing what he has to do in order to become a priest, but is in the process, arrived at the home around 10.15 to 10.30 that night. At this point, Ronnie was prepped for the process. 
And after a brief session where Father Baudern assisted Ronnie in a reflective examination of conscience, a gathering ensued. Joining in the room were Father Bishop, Mr. Halloran, Ronnie's mother, and both his aunt and uncle. Together, by Ronnie's bedside, they recited acts of faith, hope, love, and contrition. Notably, Ronnie also joined in the prayers. As the event unfolded, Father Baudern donned a surplice and stole, signifying the commencement of the exorcism prayers. Throughout, Ronnie remained conscious, with the room bathed in the glow of the overhead light. He kept his hands visibly outside the bed covers. The gravity of the situation manifested immediately upon the first utterance of Precipio. Without any physical provocation, three pronounced parallel marks appeared on Ronnie's stomach. Now, the word Precipio is a Latin term for I order or I command. As the ritual progressed, markings in reverence to our Lord, his Blessed Mother, and St. Michael became evident across Ronnie's body, from his legs to his thighs to his face and throat. And these markings were not just superficial. They were painful and deep enough to draw blood. They varied in sensation, with Ronnie describing some as thorn scratches and others as branding, as if, you know, like branding cows, um, which obviously would be 20,000 times more agonizing. Among the many markings that appeared on Ronnie's body, two stood out with chilling clarity. On Ronnie's right leg, there was an unmistakable image of the devil depicted in a vivid red hue. The devil's arms were raised, appearing webbed, resembling the menacing wings of a bat. Furthermore, the word hell was emblazoned across Ronnie's chest, positioned in such a manner that Ronnie could easily see and read the word when looking down. These distinct marks became prominent upon the repetition of the Precipio prayer, a directive demanding the malevolent spirit to reveal its identity. Everyone in the room was in unanimous agreement. These symbols could not be misconstrued or mistaken. Further responding to the Precipio prayer, the letters GO appeared. Accompanying them was a third mark pointing to Ronnie's lower abdomen, suggesting that the entity might depart either by urination or excrement. In the midst of the exorcism, as questions were posed about the number of demons influencing Ronnie, a single line appeared scratched on his right leg, perhaps indicating one dominant entity. Another recurring mark in the form of an X was imprinted on him several times. While it was theorized that this might suggest a 10-day exorcism or a departure of the demon at 10 o'clock, its significance during the initial days were unclear. Of course, over the course of the evening, Ronnie's body was marred more than 25 times, each marking causing him palpable agony. As the evening wore on, Ronnie's demeanor shifted. For a moment, he seemed to fall into a peaceful slumber, free from any discomfort. However, as Fathers Bowdern and Bishop continued their prayers, a drastic change occurred during the recitation, excuse me, dedicated to St. Michael. 
Ronnie began to display a heightened aggression, violently striking his surroundings. Though he had shown significant agitation before, such intensity was unprecedented, leading him, leading many to believe that the exorcism prayers were indeed agitating the malevolent spirit within him. During one of these frenzied moments, holy water was used to rouse Ronnie from his trance-like state, and upon awakening, he provided a chilling account of battling a massive, slimy red devil. This entity was endeavoring to hinder Ronnie from crossing iron gates that led out of a scorching pit. While the main devil was formidable, Ronnie noted the presence of other less imposing entities. At around five o'clock in the morning, the intensity of Ronnie's outbursts began to wane. When roused, he was lethargic to the point where even drinking water became a challenge, though he often expressed a thirst upon waking. Recounting his experiences, he spoke of battling intense heat during his confrontations. In stark contrast to the violent episodes earlier, Ronnie's state then transitioned into what can best be described as a singing phase. With a surprisingly powerful and high-pitched voice, he sang recognizable tunes, albeit in fragmented and garbled forms, like Swanee I've been away from you a long time. and Old Man River. His demeanor during these instances was noticeably calmer, no longer requiring physical restraint. The songs came with full arm gestures, painting a picture of intense emotion. And throughout this phase, he occasionally stirred from his trance without external intervention. Finally, around 7.30 in the morning, a semblance of normalcy returned. Ronnie drifted into a natural sleep, lasting until one o'clock that afternoon. Upon waking, he ate and engaged in everyday activities like playing a game of Monopoly. On Thursday, the 17th, Fathers Bowdern, Bishop, and Mr. Halloran again arrived at Ronnie's home between 9 and 9.30 p.m. Ronnie's father had flown in from Maryland because of the extraordinary events of the preceding evening. Ronnie declared that he was very sleepy around 9 o'clock, and his parents helped him to get ready for bed, but had difficulty in keeping him awake long enough to remove his clothes. Ronnie fell into the deep tantrum sleep, just like he did on the previous night. It was necessary for the father and uncle to hold him with considerable force because of his tirading. By means of holy water and several sharp slaps on the boy's face, Father Bishop, who was blessing him frequently with holy water, Ronnie then spat directly into the faces of his father and mother and his uncle. His eyes were shut tight, but he was able to aim well in that he was spitting during the tantrums. Nor did he know that he was fighting with those who had held him. He felt exhausted after each ordeal, but yet his pulse did not vary from normal. There were no scratches clawed upon the boy's body in the course of the evening, but the thrashing action was every bit as severe as it was on the preceding night. Threats to those who were holding Ronnie were not vulgar, yet they were loud and eerie. Occasionally, Ronnie hummed a little tune or sang phrases from Swanee River. His melody was false and the pitch was extremely high. Sleep came to Ronnie at 1.30 in the morning and then the fathers departed. 
The next day on Friday, March 18th, Ronnie had a spell about one o'clock in the afternoon. His father held him tight in his arms while the mother and aunt prayed the rosary. The struggling ceased in about one hour. Father Bowder, Father's Bowder, Bishop, and Mr. Halloran arrived at Ronnie's home later that night at seven o'clock and they chatted and played a game with Ronnie. Now Ronnie went to bed around 8.15 that night and Ronnie prayed the rosary with the clergy at his bedside. The novena prayers to Our Lady of Fatima were recited. Next, the fathers began the litany of the saints as indicated in the exorcism ritual. In the course of the litany, the mattress began to shake. Ronnie was awake. The shaking ceased when Father Bowdern blessed the bed with holy water. The prayers of the exorcism were continued and Ronnie was seized so violently that he began to struggle with his pillow and the bed clothing. The arms, legs, and head of Ronnie had to be held by three men. The contortions revealed physical strength beyond the natural power of Ronnie. Ronnie spit at the relics and at the priest's hands. He writhed under the sprinkling of holy water. He fought and screamed in a diabolical, high-pitched voice. During one of his quieter reactions, he was moving his feet in a rhythmical fashion. Father Baudern held the blessed sacrament three or four inches from the sole of the moving foot. The movement stopped on the foot, which was nearer the blessed sacrament. The manifestation of the power of the blessed sacrament showed up time after time without fail. For short intervals, Ronnie became conscious, but knew very little of what had happened. He felt the pain in his arms from the strong arm tactics that he used and which were used on him. When the exorcism was taken up again, Ronnie went back to his tantrum, even when he was trained to repeat some short prayers with Father Bowder. Ronnie stood up in bed and fought all those around him. He shouted, jumped, and swung with his fists. His face was devilish and he snapped his teeth in fury. He snapped at the priest's hands in the blessings. He bit those who held him. By midnight, there were signs of change. Ronnie stood up in bed, then he dropped to his knees and quietly went through prayers. The prayers were repeated four or five times. On several occasions, in the process of bowing, Ronnie said, Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us, and also repeated the words of the Hail Mary. The next stage was beating on a rhythm on the pillow, something similar to the rhythm of trotting horses. Then Ronnie rose again and began his strong fight for the eviction of the devil. His gyrations were in all directions. He pulled off the upper part of his underwear and held his arms high above himself in prayer. Then he made as though he were trying to vomit from his stomach. His gestures moved upwards, close to his body. He seemed to try to lift the devil from his stomach to his throat. He asked that the window be opened, and then in a happy, victorious mood, he said sweetly, he's going, going, and finally, there he goes. His body fell limp upon the bed in a perfectly relaxed condition. Everything seemed to indicate that he was fine. In a moment, he was normal and seemed relieved. The whole family knelt beside the bed and said prayers of thanksgiving. The mother was beside herself. Ronnie was asked what his experiences were during the latter part of what had happened to him, 
and he said that he saw a huge dark cloud of black vapor in front of him. A figure in black robes, cowl and white, something that was unintelligible in the notes, walked away in the cloud. Ronnie got out of bed, put on his bathrobe and saw the fathers off. He was very happy. Ronnie seems to have made a complete recovery at one o'clock in the morning. And it was about 1.30 when the clergyman departed. About 2 a.m., Ronnie started to feel strange sensations in his stomach. And in a few moments, he began to call out fearfully, he's coming back, he's coming back. Father Baudern was called at 3.15 in the morning and the three exorcists went back for more of the formula. No evident progress was made. And about 7.30 in the morning, the boy dropped off into a natural sleep. On Saturday, March 19th, um, that evening, Ronnie's home again became the backdrop for a chilling episode. The exorcists arrived at around seven o'clock and as Ronnie retired an hour later, the ritual of exorcism recommenced. Strange sounds filled the room. Ronnie shouted violently, mingled with disturbing laughter. And the shouting sounded like a barking of a dog and Ronnie snapped his teeth so viciously that it had a demonic quality. It's crucial to note that such violent outbursts only seem to occur during the exorcism prayers. There had been no such behaviors from Ronnie before the initiation of the exorcism on March 16th, when the priest asked for a sign through the prayer Precipio on three or four different occasions, Ronnie urinated seemingly without control. He complained when he woke from his state that the urine burned him. He complained his stomach and his throat hurt. Ronnie would then start to sing very beautifully in a clear voice and with real finesse. Songs like the Blue Danube with excellent and flowing gestures of interpretation. Another song that he sung was the Old Rugged Cross. And Ronnie doesn't like to sing and in normal circumstances can't sing well. When Ronnie came out of this state, Father Bishop hummed the tune of the Blue Danube, but Ronnie couldn't follow the melody. He said he didn't know the song. The evening wasn't devoid of unsettling behavior. Ronnie would call out playfully for one of the fathers, but when there was no answer, his demeanor shifted drastically, telling one of the priests that they stunk. He urinated, he passed gas. Then he would curse at the priests, saying things like, get away from me, you assholes. Go to hell, you dirty sons of bitches. God damn you, sons of bitches, and you dirty assholes. The demoniacal outbursts continued until exhaustion and then consumed Ronnie at three o'clock in the morning. The exorcist, after waiting for a half an hour, decided to go ahead and leave. On Monday the 21st, the entire family of Ronnie was losing sleep and the mother, uh, his mom had to be taken to a doctor. So it was thought best to take Ronnie to a hospital so that other members of the family might relax. Since Ronnie was so boisterous in his tantrums, it was decided that the Alexian brothers would have a room away from the regular patients where Ronnie could scream without harm to the rest of the hospital. Now the Alexian brothers hospital in St. Louis 
is a Catholic institute, and they are devoted to providing healthcare and various services to members of society. Then, too, the Alexian brothers have equipment for holding patients in bed when there is violence. So Ronnie was put to bed at 10 p.m., but he feared the surroundings of the hospital. There was a barred window, the room was bare, there were straps on the bed, and the door uh, did not have a knob on the inside. His whole reaction was one of intense fear. Father Baudern began the litany of the exorcism, and when this was completed, all of them knelt for the rosary. Ronnie did not fall asleep, nor was there any discernible reaction on the part of the devil. The exorcist group left the room while Ronnie's father read prayers for his boy during the space of a half an hour. One of the most uplifting scenes since the beginning of the case was to see the father using prayers to get his son to peacefully sleep through the night. His father slept on a divan, it's like a sofa but without a back to it, in the same room. Ronnie awakened at 6.30 in the morning and was taken home for the day. On March 22nd, Ronnie went to bed at his uncle's home where they had been staying in St. Louis around 9.30 that night. Shortly after he retired, the bed began to shake and it seemed that operations were in progress again. Ronnie's mother, mother called Father Bishop and he with two other priests drove out to the home and arrived there with the Blessed Sacrament at 11 o'clock that night. The three priests knelt at the bedside of Ronnie and began the prayers of the exorcism. The bed shook during short intervals on three different occasions. When the exorcism was completed, the rosary was recited and Ronnie went off into a natural sleep. The fathers departed at midnight and no further action took place. On Wednesday, March 23rd, Father Baudern arranged that Ronnie might have a room at the college church rectory. Two beds were provided so that Ronnie's father might sleep in the same room with the son. Ronnie took a brief instruction on the Catholic religion and then went to bed at 9.30 that night. Short acts of faith, hope, love, and contrition were received by all the group, including Ronnie. Immediately upon the first innovations of the litany, Ronnie went into his tantrum. He fought and kicked and spit so that three men could scarcely hold him. In the course of the evening, Ronnie broke Mr. Halloran's nose and caused Father Rue's nose to bleed. The first blows were accurate, quick, and deadly, although Ronnie's eyes were shut. At the Precipio, Ronnie urinated rather copiously and on coming to himself, complained of the burning sensation. There were four or five such urinations during the evening. Several times, there was passing of wind through the rectum. The language of Ronnie became abusive and dirty. He met one of the fathers in hell and stated the year as 1957. He indicated surprise at finding the father in hell. The vile and filthy talk which followed makes anyone shudder. Ronnie spoke in a sexually suggestive manner and shook his body in a suggestive and shimmy fashion. When Ronnie came to normal from time to time, he would say that the men down there were using filthy language. Ronnie was never accustomed to filthy expressions in his regular life. With more contortions, barking, and singing, Ronnie finally went off into natural sleep at 2.30 in the morning. His body was limp, and completely exhausted. 
On Thursday, March 24th, at the rectory, reactions began at 9.45 p.m. and continued until 2.30 in the morning. Father Bishop thought that this would be the last night, since it was the Feast of St. Gabriel, and the next day was the Feast of the Annunciation. Father Baudern believed that the X mark on Ronnie from the first night of the exorcism should be interpreted as the 10th day, so he did not expect the devil to leave until the following night. Ronnie had great physical strength. Four men were holding him. Ronnie ran the gamut of shouting, screaming, barking, singing, kindly expressions, urinating, and passing foul air. One of the assisting fathers was met in hell in 1956. He was called a big fat ass and an ox. Michael, the workman who helped Ronnie, uh, was constantly in Ronnie's bitter imprecations or in silly rhymes. And Ronnie would say, Michael, pickle, lickle, sickle, Michael, you look so dirty. Again, Ronnie began to speak in highly a highly suggestive sexual manner, and he called to the exorcist to cut out the damned Latin, get away from me, you goddamn bastards. About two o'clock in the morning, Ronnie noted from his tantrum that the bystanders were going to stay to the end. In a coy tone, he remarked, you'd like to stay with me? Well, I like it too. The blessed sacrament had no noticeable effect on the course of the night. He slept from 2.30 in the morning till 11.30 in the morning. On Friday, the 25th, at the rectory, Ronnie was very restless and could not sleep. The group of priests prayed outside his door. For brief periods, Ronnie fell into fitful tossing, which was not real sleep. On one occasion, Ronnie fell out of bed, but he was not hurt. Next, he walked awkwardly into the arms of Father Baudern and Father Van Roo. Shortly before midnight, he lay prone on his back with his arms stiff at his side. He began a leg and arm movement as a gymnastic exercise. His arms moved out straight from his body and then moved back in straight lines to the side of his body. There was no noise. After midnight, there was some pitching about, but not for long intervals. Ronnie cursed his father and spit at him. He then kicked at the priests at his bedside. He pushed the nearby chair with his foot several times and finally fell into a deep sleep at one o'clock in the morning. This was Friday night, the 10th night since the exorcism was begun. Perhaps the X given on the first night was to mean 10 days. On Monday night, the family were home where Ronnie had been staying and the home was again blessed by, by Father Baudern. No disturbances occurred Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday nights and Ronnie was starting to get back to a normal life. On Thursday, March 31st at 11.30 p.m., Ronnie came downstairs and complained that he didn't feel good and that his feet felt cold and then hot. When the family went up to the bedroom with him, the disturbances began. First, the shaking of the bed. He began to write on the sheet with his finger, explaining between spells that he seemed to be reading from a blackboard. They were unable to make out what he was writing on the sheet. Then he began to talk, telling what he saw on the blackboard. So notes were taken by his cousin and they were as follows. Quote, I will stay 10 days, but return in four days. If you stay and become a Catholic, it will stay away. God will take it away four days after it has gone 10 days. God is getting powerful. 
The last day, when it quits, it will leave a sign on my front. Father Bishop, all people that mangle with me will die a terrible death. The family called the rectory about midnight. Fathers Bowdern and Van Roo arrived at the house at about one o'clock in the morning, and Father Bowdern began the rite of exorcism. At the Precipio, Ronnie called for a pencil. At this point, and frequently at the beginning of subsequent spells, he addressed one or both of the two persons. Pete was addressed most frequently, and Joe, but I'm unsure who these two were. Taking the pencil, he began to write with it on the head of the bed, which was covered with a white cloth. This type of spell and writing was repeated perhaps eight or ten times. What he wrote was recorded, for the most part. The family washed away the writing a few times, making room for more, uh, but a family member fastened large sheets of wrapping paper to the bed. The following is a record of most of the writings, though it is not complete. Some of the things written were repeated. Number one, in answer to the first set of questions, he wrote the numeral, Roman numeral X. It was clearly the numeral with the crossbars at the top and bottom. This was written four times on the first occasion and was repeated several times during the exorcism, usually in answer to the question diem, which in Latin means day. Number two, I will stay 10 days and then return after the four days are up. I am the devil himself. You will have to pray for a month in the Catholic Church. In answer to the command to give nomen lingua latina, which means name in the Latin language, I speak the language of two persons, and the word language had been misspelled. I will put in Ronnie's mind when he wakes up his mind that the priests are wrong about writing English. I will, that is, the devil will try to get his mother and dad to hate the Catholic Church. I will answer in the name of spite. Number five, in 10 days, I will give a sign on his chest. He will have to have it covered to show my power. Number six, he drew a strange thing that looked somewhat like a map with 2000 feet written on it. Uh, This was apparently connected with early dreams about hidden treasure and a map to find it. I believe that it was in this connection that he spoke also saying, Yeah, this is what I got on the Ouija board. He drew a face also and wrote the words, dead bishop. Number seven, you may not believe me, then Ronnie will suffer forever. Number eight, when commanded to give the sign in Latin, he wrote meaningless marks on the paper, not even letters of the Roman alphabet. On Friday, April 1st, Ronnie had been taking instructions on Catholic doctrine uh, since Wednesday, actually March 23rd, under the direction of Father McMahon. Ronnie's father and mother leaving Ronnie's choice of religion to himself. They had agreed that Ronnie would not be confirmed in the Lutheran church as had been planned previously. With the relapse into five days of respite, the mother, father, and Ronnie agreed that the proper thing to do was to have Ronnie baptized a Catholic. Sponsors were picked and the baptismal party was to arrive at the college church between 8 and 8.30 p.m. As the party of five relatives drove from Ronnie's home, Ronnie felt a strange sensation in his feet. There were alternations of hot and cold feelings and then Ronnie went into one of his spells. He began by saying, so you are going to baptize me, ha ha, and you think you will drive me out with Holy Communion, ha ha. 
Ronnie then grabbed the steering wheel of the automobile and his uncle was forced to pull up to the curb in order to subdue the violence. Ronnie stiffened and fought. It was a major task to remove him from the front seat and force him into the back of the car. Ronnie's father and his uncle held Ronnie in the back seat while the aunt drove. Even with careful supervision, Ronnie leaped up to seize his aunt as she drove. An interesting sidelight is that the radio in the car would not operate while Ronnie was in a spell, although it worked before and after. In the college church rectory, another hard struggle almost made it impossible for three men to carry Ronnie from the car to the rectory. Inside the door of the rectory, Ronnie shouted and spit. Even ice cold water had little effect on him. The father and uncle were completely exhausted from the battle. Ronnie was carried to the third floor of the rectory and placed on the bed. There was little hope that the baptism could be administered at the baptismal font in the presence of the chosen sponsors. So Michael, the workman, was chosen as proxy. Ronnie was in and out of his seizures for short periods, but there was not enough time for the long profession of faith and abjuration of hearsay, in other words, to reject Satan. Father Baudern had Ronnie repeat the words in a briefer form. Then the regular procedure for the baptism of infants followed. However, when Ronnie was asked, dost thou renounce Satan? He went off into a spell. The action was repeated three or four times, but Ronnie went off before he could answer the question with the words, I do renounce him. Finally, Ronnie was normal long enough to give the answers. When Father Baudern came to the baptism proper, the physical resistance exceeded any violence of the evening. Ronnie remained conscious for the words, quote, ego te baptismo in nomine patris. And then there was a violent upheaval. Nonetheless, the baptism was completed with a generous amount of baptismal water. The usual spitting, gyrating, cursing, and physical violence continued until 11.30 p.m. On Saturday, April 2nd, Ronnie was awakened at 9.30 in the morning, but he was not calm. He threw a pillow at the light and broke the shade and the bulb. The crockery basin in his room was likewise shattered. This was the morning when Ronnie was to receive his first Holy Communion. Fathers Bishop and O'Flaherty were called in to assist Father Baudern in the preparation for Holy Communion. It was evident that a struggle was at hand. There was no difficulty in going through the conditional confession. Perhaps this quietness indicated again that the baptism of the preceding night had taken effect. When Father Baudern began the prayers for the Holy Communion, Ronnie went into his spell, kept his eyes shut and his mouth closed, but he was not hard to hold at this time. Ronnie rallied for brief moments, yet whenever Father Baudern brought the Eucharistic particle near Ronnie, the boy went into his spell. On five different occasions, when the particle was placed in Ronnie's mouth, he spit it out onto the corporal or purification, which was always held in front of his mouth, for caution. After nearly two hours of vain attempts, Father O'Flaherty suggested that we pray the rosary in honor of Our Lady of Fatima, especially since this was the first Saturday of the month. When the fathers had completed the rosary, another attempt was made with the Holy Communion. This time, Ronnie was able to swallow and he made his first Holy Communion under extraordinary opposition. 
Ronnie finished dressing himself and prepared to leave for home. Father Baudern asked Father O'Flaherty to drive the car while he himself, Ronnie's father, and Ronnie sat in the back seat. It was about 11.45 in the morning. Only a few minutes after the car was in motion, Ronnie jumped up off the seat and grabbed Father O'Flaherty and had to be pulled off with force. Ronnie was not normal on the road for more than a few minutes at a time. At home, he came to long enough to eat a fairly good-sized breakfast. During the remainder of the day, there was only brief intervals of consciousness. The sacraments had stirred up Satan more than any other priestly administration. The family was nervously worn from the long day of fighting. Fathers Baudern, Bishop O'Flaherty, and Michael arrived at Ronnie's home at about 7.40 p.m. The spells continued. There was no response to the Precipio before 8.40 p.m. One short spell of less than a minute occurred between 8.40 and 11.15 p.m. During this period, Ronnie ate a dish of ice cream, and at 11.15, Ronnie ran downstairs and sat on the arm of a parlor chair. He was becoming so nervous that he could scarcely stay in the bedroom. Father Baudern feared that Ronnie would become violent downstairs, so he asked Ronnie to go back to the bedroom. Ronnie trotted up the stairs in a boyish fashion, turned into his bedroom, and ran straight for the reliquary. This is a container that holds the Holy Cross. Father O'Flaherty caught his hand in time, but Ronnie reached for the open ritual and tore four pages out of the exorcism for formula. He grasped with lightning speed, then followed a spell in which Father Baudern commanded that Ronnie should respond in Latin to the Percipio. Dicus mihi nonum tum. In Latin, it means tell me your name and the time of your final departure. The only responses were a repetition of the Latin words followed by a remark, stick it up your ass, or by no, or by a laugh of ridicule. At 12.15, spells continued with the same type of responses to the Precipio. There was a jumbled mockery of the Latin questions. However, at this stage, writing appeared on the boy. The letters go were printed in red as they were on the first night of the exorcism. At the command, Dicus Mihitium, in Latin this means tell me, three parallel scratches appeared on Ronnie's thigh. At Horum, an X was branded. At 1.15 a.m., Ronnie was so nervous that he begged to get out of bed and sit on a chair. His hands trembled in nervous frenzy. He begged his father to take him back to Washington on Sunday. He could not stand the ordeal any longer and he feared going crazy. Relief came at 1.40 in the morning in a natural sleep. On Sunday, April 3rd, at seven o'clock in the morning, Ronnie threw a pillow at the ceiling light, but then went back to sleep. There was another short seizure at about 8.30, but Ronnie went back to sleep until 11.30. Then he had breakfast. About 12 o'clock noon, Ronnie walked downstairs, but went into spells several times but there was nothing of a serious note until four o'clock in the afternoon. Ronnie engaged in a ball game with his father, two uncles, and a cousin. At one point, he tried to throw the ball to his father, but began to stagger as a drunken man. His father rushed to his assistance when the boy began to run in a straight line across the lawns of two of the neighbors. He ran with his eyes shut and with high speed. 
Three men closed in on him and carried him back. In the kitchen, Ronnie lifted the heavy kitchen table with one of his legs. Ronnie ate very little supper and seemed abnormal. Fathers Bowdern, Van Rue, Bishop, and O'Flaherty arrived at the home at about seven o'clock. Within a few minutes, Ronnie had a spell in which he grabbed his aunt and would have torn her dress if several men had not come to her assistance. Ronnie was carried upstairs fighting, but came to himself shortly after he was thrown into the bed. This was Passion Sunday. So the fathers thought that God would put an end to Ronnie's suffering on this night. The exorcism was begun in full, but there was no response at the Precipio. It was hard to quiet Ronnie by any means, but a pillow in his face. From 9.30 to 12 o'clock, there was no disturbance except snoring and restless sleep. The fathers departed at midnight, but more trouble began at 12.30. It became necessary to bind the arms of Ronnie with tape and to place gloves on his hands. Then he complained of the pain from the adhesive tape and the heat of, of the gloves. However, when the tape and gloves were removed, Ronnie went about his violence again. It was 3.30 before quiet came. On Monday, April 4th, arrangements were made that the family was to go back to Washington, D.C. by train at 9.30 in the morning. Ronnie's father had lost a lot of time from his work and the strain upon the St. Louis family was beginning to toll. Fathers Bowdern and Van Rue were to accompany Ronnie and his parents on the trip. It was difficult to rouse Ronnie from his sleep, but cold water dashed in his face brought him out sufficiently so that he could be dressed. He was taken to the railroad station, accompanied by his father, mother, and uncle uncle, and friend of the family. There was no difficulty boarding the train. Ronnie walked and chatted normally. En route to Washington, there was no trouble on the train all day. One short spell of violence occurred when Ronnie retired that night at 11.30. The next day, Ronnie awoke normally on the train and was taken to his home in Maryland without a mishap. In the course of the morning, Fathers Bowdern met Father Hughes, the assistant pastor at St. James Church at Mount Rainier, and found that he had made arrangements with the Chancellor of the Archdiocese of Washington that Father Bowdern would have full permission to continue with the exorcism. Neither the pastor nor the assistant at St. James in whose parish Ronnie lives was able to assume the full responsibility of the case because of lack of room for the boy. It was thought advisable by all concerned that Ronnie should not be kept at home. Fathers Bowdern and Hughes tried several hospitals in Washington, but because of the nature of the case, no one was willing to accept the burden. On Tuesday, April 7th, Fathers Bowdern and Hughes drove to Baltimore to inquire about a room. The Daughters of Charity were willing to take the boy, but the doctors objected since the case was not psychiatric. And furthermore, since the hospital was depended upon the state of Maryland for aid, each client had to be accounted for on the records. It would have been strange to include the treatment of exorcism. With disappointment in Washington and Baltimore, Father Bowdern decided to call again on his devoted friends, the Alexian brothers in St. Louis. He called long distance and was assured a place for Ronnie through the kindness of brother, brother Rector. Ronnie was normal 
During the entire day, he took some exercise in the afternoon and upon retiring, he had one very slight spell, which lasted only seconds and may have just been a nightmare. Ronnie was normal all day. He worked in the afternoon, he spaded a little and cut the lawn. But the evening spell lasted for five hours from 9.15 p.m. to 2.15 a.m. Ronnie was awake during the exorcism at the Precipio at least 20 brands appeared on Ronnie's body. Many occurred at the name of Jesus as he recited the Hail Mary. The first mark was clearly a number four. Some other marks that may have been the number four were also there, but they were obscure. Other marks, a single stroke, double stroke, seemingly a pitchfork, several times four strokes or claw marks of various lengths on belly or legs. One set of such claw marks from thigh to ankle, tearing off a scab near the ankle. When these marks occurred, the boy's hands were kept away from his body. One branding occurred on his leg just as he started to lie down after the preceding mark had been observed. Most of the branding occurred under his clothing or at least under the sheet covering him. There was also spitting and violence, singing, humming the Ave Maria, filthy talk, writing on his own body with fingernail the words hell and Christ in large capital letters. Through Ronnie, the devil said that he would keep the priests until six o'clock in the morning. He made the statement at 2 a.m. when everyone was exhausted. He said he would prove his threat by having four awaken immediately. Ronnie awoke with a start, but the fathers were, and this was unintelligible in the notes, when sound sleep came 15 minutes after two o'clock in the morning. On Friday, April 8th, Ronnie was normal all day. There was a five hour session in the night starting at 8.15 uh, p.m. And this began when Ronnie was alone in the bathroom. Two hours and 15 minutes of great physical violence, a half hour of crying, this continued with shorter spells until 1.20 in the morning. Violence, spitting, nonsense jumbling of Latin questions, singing Blue Danube, Ave Maria, and so forth. There was filthy talk and movements and filthy attacks at those at the bedside. Irritated and impatient after the long struggle, Fathers Hughes and Canning arrived with the Blessed Sacrament around 11 o'clock at night. The house was blessed by Father Hughes. Ronnie twice threw his pillow in the direction of the Blessed Sacrament. He took one sedative, spat it out, and finally swallowed it. Saturday, April 9th, on the return trip to St. Louis, Ronnie was normal all day. He did go under, undergo a short spell upon retiring in the evening. On Sunday, April 10th, when Ronnie did get back to St. Louis, he was sent immediately to the Alexian brothers, where the brothers took him into one of their private living rooms for the day. Fathers Bowdern, O'Flaherty, Van Roo, and Bishop arrived at the hospital shortly after seven o'clock at night. Ronnie was on the fifth floor where he had occupied the same room that he had been in on the previous visit. The exorcism was completed and several rosaries were said but no disturbances occurred. Ronnie went into a good sleep at about 11 o'clock that night, but the fathers decided to awaken him after midnight in order to give him Holy Communion. Ronnie was so fatigued 
that it seemed almost hopeless to keep him awake for more than seconds at a time. When the fathers were planning on just abandoning the experiment, Ronnie became quite normal and was able to receive communion without special effort. The Blessed Sacrament brought peace to Ronnie. He settled back on his pillow with a smile and was soon in deep sleep. Nothing disturbing happened throughout the night. On Monday, April 11th, Brother Emmett kept Ronnie occupied with manual work on his hospital floor, and what was most valuable won the friendship and confidence of Ronnie so that the psychiatric surroundings were more understandable and agreeable. Fathers Baudern, Van Roo, Bishop, and Mr. Halloran arrived at the hospital at 8 o'clock that night. Father Bishop brought some Catholic readers and stories for Ronnie so that he would have more than his catechism for study and reading. Ronnie went to bed at around 9 o'clock that night and the exorcism was completed. The evening gave every reason for expecting quiet. While the fathers were reciting the rosary, Ronnie felt a sting on his chest. But upon examination, there was only a blotch of red that was observable. The rosary was continued until Ronnie was struck more sharply by a branding on his chest. The letters were in caps and read in the direction of his crotch. Exit seemed quite clear. On another branding, a large arrow followed up the word exit and pointed downwards. The word exit appeared at three different times in different parts of Ronnie's body. Ronnie felt terrible pains in his kidneys and cried from the burning sensations. When he urinated, he complained of even more severe pain. At midnight, the fathers planned to give Ronnie Holy Communion again, but Satan would have no part of it. Even while the institution of the Blessed Sacrament was explained to Ronnie, his body was badly scratched and branded. The word hell was printed on his chest and thigh. Upon the explanation of the apostles becoming priests and receiving our Lord as the last, as the last supper, scratches appeared from Ronnie's hips to his ankles in heavy lines, seemingly as a protest to Holy Communion. When Father Baudern attempted to give Ronnie a small particle of the sacred host, the boy was taken off by a quick seizure and the devil said that he would not allow Ronnie to receive. After four or five attempts, it was thought that a spiritual communion would have to suffice. But even the expression of the words, quote, I want to receive you in Holy Communion, was cut off by seizure at the word communion. From all further indications during the evening, it seemed that the attempts to administer the sacrament of the Eucharist roused the devil more than ordinarily. He went through his usual routine of fighting, barking, cursing, swearing, and spitting. But this kept on longer than usual. There was no quiet sleep. On Tuesday, April 12th, action began after the exorcism prayers. During the general recitation of the rosary by the brothers, the regular performance began, but with the omission of writing on Ronnie's body. The noise and singing were disturbing to everyone. Ronnie gave no response to the Principio except to imitate the Latin words, then laugh or say, stick it up your ass. One new phrase was the display of the devil's power over the senses and external personality of Ronnie. In one instance, the devil said he would have, he would have Ronnie awaken and the boy would be pleasant and attractive. 
the devil's promise was true. A few minutes later, the devil said he would have Ronnie awakened, but this time he would be offensive. True to the promise, Ronnie came out of the spell very irritable, and he complained quite bitterly to those who held him. Several attempts were made to give Ronnie Holy Communion after midnight, but each trial was unsuccessful. The devil showed definitely that he was not Ronnie speaking, for he said, I will not let Ronnie receive Holy Communion. It was about 1.30 in the morning before quiet sleep followed. On Wednesday, April 13th, Ronnie did receive Holy Communion upon arising in the morning without encountering any difficulty. During the afternoon, Ronnie was taken out to the White House, which is a retreat house on the grounds, and shown the chapel there, as well as the Stations of the Cross. At the 14th station, when Ronnie was furthest away from the White House retreat, he went into a spell and he had to be carried back to the car. The seizure lasted about 20 minutes. In the evening, Ronnie was ready for bed at about 8.45. He was bright and cheerful and he was very happy with some trick gadgets that Father McMahon had given him. As he sat on the bed and before any prayers were begun, Ronnie went off into a quick but violent seizure. It seemed to the exorcist that this would be an important evening. Ronnie spoke almost immediately and said that God had commanded him to leave at 11 o'clock that night, but that he would not leave without a struggle. He proved the latter part of his promise by showing relatively more physical power than at any previous time. He stayed in his first spell for 20 minutes while Father Baudern worked on the exorcism and the brothers prayed the rosary in honor of Our Lady of Fatima. The devil was given commands and the devil ignored the commands and instead answered in pig Latin, playfully imitated the commands or used the common expression, stick it up your ass. He began singing the words, stick it up, stick it up. In no instance up to this point in this case has the devil answered in Latin, although his limitation of Latin was clear and distinct. Filthy talk and damning threats to those at the bedside continued as it had on other evenings. A new note of the evening was the loud nuisance shouting of fire at 10.45. Ronnie began to imitate the sound of a large church bell sounding out the 11 o'clock hour. He sustained the NG sound at the word of bong. After 11 o'clock PM, the same cathedral bell sounds were repeated, but it was very evident that the devil had deceived everyone by his first remark that evening. After midnight, unsuccessful attempts were made to give Ronnie Holy Communion. Satan said again that he would not permit Holy Communion. He laughed at each of the attempts. Ronnie could not repeat the word communion before he went into the spell. The brothers had prayed valiantly for several hours around midnight. They completed more than 50 decades of the rosary and their prayerful assistance is worthy of the highest comment. Round the clock adoration of the Blessed Sacrament was begun by the brothers on Monday or Tuesday evening. Thursday was Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, April 14th, 15th, and 16th. And Ronnie received Holy Communion from the hospital chaplain, Father Weidman, on Thursday morning. The fathers arrived for prayers of exorcism in the evening. Rosary was continued by the brothers. There were no reactions before or after midnight on Thursday. The fathers were informed this night that Brother Rector purchased a new statue of Our Lady of Fatima 
and had it placed in a conspicuous spot on the first floor corridor of the hospital. It was dedicated to the Blessed Virgin with a the petition that Our Lady of Fatima would intercede for Ronnie on his ordeal. The brothers promised community devotions to Our Lady of Fatima should Ronnie be spared from further affliction. No disturbances of any sort occurred on Holy Thursday, Good Friday, or Holy Saturday. On Holy Saturday, Brother Rector brought a small colorful statue of St. Michael the Archangel. The statue was placed in Ronnie's room. It should be remarked here that one of the most effective prayers of exorcism was that dedicated to St. Michael. After midnight on Saturday, arrangements were made that Ronnie should be awakened for 6.30 communion and that he should attend the second mass in the Brothers Chapel Easter morning. Easter Sunday, April 17th, Father Windman, hospital chaplain, made three unsuccessful attempts to give Ronnie Holy Communion in his room. After some waiting and slapping of the of Ronnie, the fourth attempt succeeded. Brother Theophane, who was on nurse duty in Ronnie's room, was reading the Office of the Blessed Virgin. It was about 6.45 in the morning when he came to the Regina Cayley. Ronnie jumped up out of bed, then grabbed the office book from the brother and reached for the scapular from the brother's habit, which was placed on a nearby chair. Ronnie fought and spit at the brother and trampled the scapular underfoot in an Indian war dance. The devil said, I will not let him go to mass. Everyone thinks it will be good for him. It was impossible to get Ronnie to the chapel because of his frequent seizures. Father Baudern was called to the hospital and shortly after his arrival, the spell was broken. There was no further reaction until evening. Brother Emmett was then escorting Ronnie back to the basement floor of the hospital when Ronnie went into a fighting spell. The brother was alone and shouted for help, but it was some time before the other brothers heard him. Brother Emmett was quite exhausted from the struggle. Ronnie was carried into the elevator and placed in his fifth floor room. The fathers immediately began the prayers of exorcism and the usual indications of violence continued. The devil showed his power again by saying that he would have Ronnie awaken and ask for a knife. He had threatened to kill those who had touched him while he was in his seizure. When Ronnie came out of the spell, he asked for a knife so that he might cut an Easter egg. A little later, the devil said that he would have Ronnie awaken and ask for a drink of water, and Ronnie carried out the plan. There was no response to the Presidio except taunting remarks to the exorcists. Everyone, including Ronnie, was becoming weary of the long performance. Ronnie did not begin to sleep until midnight and the fathers left the hospital at 12.45. On Monday, April 18th at eight o'clock in the morning, Ronnie awoke in a spell, kicking at the brother at the bedside. He jumped out of bed, seized the holy water bottle, threatened to throw it at the brothers, and then sprinkled water toward them. Finally, he threw the bottle over their heads, smashing it against the ceiling. At 8.15 in the morning, Father Whitman attempted to give Ronnie communion. It was impossible. Spitting, unable to make even spiritual communion, the devil then seized him and said that one devil was out and that Ronnie had to make nine communions, sacramental or spiritual, apparently, and then he would leave his body. Ronnie continued for an hour, unable to make spiritual communion or to receive the sacrament. At 10 o'clock in the morning, there were more spells when attempting spiritual communion. Ronnie was able to say, I wish to receive you. 
That is all the priest attempted to have him say, since it was sufficient. The devil laughed and said, That isn't enough. He has to say one more word. One little word. I mean, one big word. He'll never say it. He has to make nine communions. He'll never say that word. I am always in him. I may not have much power always, but I am in him. He will never say that word. Several spells, violence, singing, and more urination followed. At 11.30 in the morning, Ronnie said he was hungry and wanted a bath and food. And they put him off until noon. They then gave him a tray, cake, ice cream, and milk. He threw the glass against the wall, scattering broken glass all over. Violence was intermittent until about 1.30 p.m. Ronnie was very discouraged and disgusted and mean. In the afternoon, the brothers brought Ronnie a serving of chipped beef and arranged Ronnie's tray on a little table in his room. Ronnie picked up the plate, ran over to the window, held the plate in an almost perpendicular manner in the palm of his hand and dared the brothers to step closer. One of the brothers crawled under the bed to catch Ronnie at his feet. The other circled the bed to restrain Ronnie's arms, but the plate was fired mightily against the opposite wall. No one was hurt, but the plate was broken to bits. On the trip to the hospital on this evening, the fathers had decided that in the Principio, Fathers Bowdern would ask for the responses in English. Moreover, the medals were to be left on Ronnie despite of his protests to the contrary. These resolutions were discussed and carried out because of the information gathered from the reading concerning several other cases of possession. Father Bowdern, O'Flaherty, and Bishop arrived at the hospital at 7 o'clock p.m. Father Van Roo had been with Ronnie during the greater part of the day, but was relieved by the brothers shortly before the evening meal. Ronnie asked to telephone his mother but on his way to the telephone, he went into a spell and had to be carried back to his room in a fighting mood. Father Baldurn read the rite of exorcism quietly. When he came to certain words, he then blessed Ronnie with signs of the cross. He repeated the expressions perfectly and asked their meaning. Several times, he repeated the Latin. The signs of the cross and the cru crucifix were very effective. Ronnie fought hard when the crucifix was forced into his hand. In one instance, Ronnie threw the crucifix out of his hand. Next, Father O'Flaherty began teaching Ronnie the first half of the Ave Maria in Latin because Ronnie had expressed a real interest in Latin. In the space of 15 minutes, Ronnie could recite a good portion of the prayer unassisted. After the memory lesson, Father O'Flaherty told Ronnie the complete story of Our Lady of Fatima, to which Ronnie paid strict attention. A little later, he asked for a Catholic reader containing eighth grade prose and poetry, and then thumbed through several stories as he sat in bed. Finally, in a boyish way, he took to balancing the book on his knees and on his head. Ronnie went into a spell while he held the book on his knees, and immediately the book was thrown into the corner of the room. From 9.30 until 10 o'clock at night, Ronnie was in and out of seizures, burying his quiet moments. The most impressive prayer of the evening was Ronnie's relevance seemed truly remarkable. Ronnie was more cooperative this night than he had ever been before. He felt that he had to pray whenever he was out of a seizure. He asked whether he could make spiritual communions on his own, and he wondered whether through his prayers, 
He himself could bring on spells at different times. Whenever he became normal, he reverted to prayer. He stated several times that he saw more light each time he went into a spell. The light seemed to be at the end of a dark tunnel. Ronnie complained several times that the metals on his neck were hot and he asked that they be removed, but the metal was not taken off. Father Bowdern forced a small crucifix into Ronnie's hand when he was in a spell. The reaction to the metals and the cross was exceptional. When Father Weidman blessed Ronnie with his ordination crucifix and asked Ronnie to kiss the image, Ronnie went into a spell. During all of the above seizures, Father Bowdern continued the Precipio and asked them the response to be given in English. This procedure was a change from the regular routine. At 10.45 p.m., the most striking event of the evening occurred. Ronnie was in a seizure but lay calm in clear commanding tones and with dignity, a voice broke into the prayers. The following is an accurate quotation. Quote, Satan, Satan, I am Saint Michael, and I command you, Satan, and the other evil spirits to leave the body in the name of Dominus, immediately, now, now, now. Then there were the most violent contortions of the entire period of exorcism that is since March 16th. Perhaps this was the fight to the finish. Father O'Flaherty and the brothers were weary and sore physically from the exertion. After seven or eight minutes of violence, Ronnie, in a tome of complete relief, said, he's gone. Immediately, Ronnie came back to normal and said he felt fine. Ronnie now explained what he saw. He said that there was a brilliant white light, and in that light stood a very beautiful man with flowing wavy hair that blew in the breeze. He wore a white robe that fitted close to his body. The material gave the impression of scales. Only the upper half of the body of this man was visible to Ronnie. In his right hand, he held up a wavy and fiery sword in front of him. With his left hand, he pointed down to a pit or cave. Ronnie said he saw the devil standing in the cave. Ronnie felt the heat from the cave and saw the flames. First, the devil fought, resisting the angel and laughing diabolically. Then the angel smiled at Ronnie and spoke, but Ronnie heard the only the one word, Dominus. As the angel spoke, the devil and about 10 of his helpers ran back into the fire of the cave or pit. After the devil disappeared, seeing the letters spite appear on the bars of the cave. As the devils disappeared into the pit, Ronnie felt a pulling or tugging in the region of his stomach. As the devils disappeared, he felt a snapping and then felt relaxed completely. He said this was the most relaxed feeling he had since the whole experience began in January. Ronnie related his visual experience at 11 o'clock p.m. This time was approximate to the time that the manifestations of the devil began in Cottage City, Maryland on the evening of January 15, 1949. After 12 midnight, Ronnie led another rosary and the fathers and brothers responded. He was composed and peaceful. Arrangements were made that Father Van Rue would say mass for Ronnie in the hospital chapel at 9.30 Tuesday morning. Tuesday, April 19th, Ronnie was awakened from a heavy sleep and taken to the chapel where he attended the first Holy Mass since he became a Catholic. He likewise received Holy Communion 
at the altar rail with no difficulty. Ronnie promised to say 10 rosaries in thanks to Our Lady of Fatima during the course of the day. Since Monday at 11 p.m., there have been no indications of the presence of the devil. Later on, a follow-up was made to the diary, but it is unknown who the author was. And it goes like this. This was on August 19th of 1951. Ronnie and his father and mother visited the brothers. Ronnie, now 16, is a fine young man. His father and mother also became Catholic, having received their first Holy Communion on Christmas Day, 1950. Father William Bowdern, in the years following Ronnie's exorcism, consulted on over 200 cases of alleged demonic possession. None proved to be valid. Father Bowdern died in 1983 at the age of 86. Father Albert Hughes became pastor of St. James Catholic Church in Mount Rainier. He died in 1980, four days after breaking his silence to his assistant, Father Frank Bober. Ronnie lives in a, nor a normal and productive life with no memory to the event of the events in Mount Rainier or St. Louis. His identity remains a closely guarded secret. Now, of course, today, we know that his name was Ronnie Hunkeler, and Ronnie passed away in 2020, just shy of his 86th birthday, after suffering a stroke in his home in Maryland. Ronnie, who in his adult life went by Ronald, worked as a NASA engineer, and his work contributed to the Apollo space missions of the 1960s. And he had patented a technology that helped space shuttle panels withstand extreme heat. He retired from NASA in 2001 after working for them for nearly 40 years. Now, one of Ronald's companions who didn't want to be named said that Ronald was always on edge about his NASA colleagues finding out that he was the inspiration for the Exorcist book and movie. Allegedly, none of his co-workers knew about his past and he would not talk to his co-workers about the exorcism. She is quoted as saying, quote, on Halloween, we always left the house because he figured someone would come to his residence and know where he lived and never let him have peace. He had a terrible life from worry, worry, worry. Shortly before his death, a Catholic priest showed up at Hunkler's home unexpectedly to perform last rites. His companion said, quote, I have no idea how the father knew to come, but he got Ron into heaven. Ron's in heaven and he's with God now. This case is definitely one of the more well-known cases. And no matter which case you look at where the person is thought to be possessed, there will always be one side who truly believes and another that believes that there just has to be a logical scientific ex explanation. So what do you believe? Was this a case of a teenage boy pulling pranks on his family for over four months? Or was it a case of true demonic possession? Let me know in the comments. I may be reading some of these comments at the beginning of the next podcast episode. So if you have something uh, you might want relayed, please uh, leave me a comment. And that'll do it for this um, pretty decently long episode, isn't it? <laughs> I didn't realize it was going to be this long. But anyhow, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, again, please leave a comment if you would like to. And uh, I may be using those in the next uh, podcast episode. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you all. Thank you. Until next time. See you.